Welcome to another episode of the Father Ted Talk, broadcast here at the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Every October, the Seton Shrine hosts a powerful faith drama called Back from the Dead. In these cemetery walks, you will encounter saints who come back to life with life-saving messages. Learn more at satanshrine.org. Now here's Father Ted. St. Vincent de Paul. He is arguably one of those most influential saints in the church because of what not just he did, but also on account of what all of his spiritual children have done, especially what they have done on behalf of the poor and the outcast. But Vincent de Paul, he didn't begin his life as somebody particularly concerned about the poor. He began his life, actually, as a poor individual himself. He was born to a poor farming family in southwest France. But his father grasped that Vincent had this incredible intellectual capacity, and so the family made huge sacrifices to guarantee that Vincent, unlike all of his siblings, would receive an education. And so they sold many of their precious farm animals to make that happen. But Vincent wasn't exactly a saint at this point either. He didn't appreciate so much what his family was doing for him. And so one time when he was studying in the university, his father came to visit him, came walking from their farm in his poor farmer's clothes. And Vincent was so embarrassed by his father's poverty that he wouldn't even go out to meet him. He got ordained when he was only 19 years old. The code of canon law back then, you said you had to be 25, but he managed to somehow get ordained a little bit earlier. And he immediately started to to climb this ecclesiastical ladder, looking for these cozy positions that would pay well and give him a lot of prestige. And so his first ministry, we can say, was to be the chaplain to to Queen Margaret of Alloy. And he gained a reputation there in this noble household as being a brilliant preacher. But God had something up his sleeve that would change everything for Vincent. One time when Vincent was going by boat to Marseille in southern France, his boat was attacked by pirates from Africa, and they captured Vincent, and he ended up being a slave in Tunis for two whole years. And he only managed to escape when he finally convinced his owner to convert back to Catholicism, His owner was actually an ex-priest who himself had been captured, set free, and then stayed in Africa. And so he convinced or he converted his owner, and the both of them fled back to France. And Vincent at this point was only 26 or 27 years old. And this is the moment in which everything changed for Vincent. This is the moment where he stopped living for the sake of prestige, wealth, and advancement, and he started living for God, started living with his eyes upon doing the will of God. So he turned down numerous offers to be chaplain for different nobles, but he had a close relation with the the Count Felipe de Gandhi. And Count Felipe de Gandhi, he he was in charge of the French penal system. And so through this connection with the French count, Saint Vincent was named the chaplain and the almoner, the guy who distributes alms, the guy who provides material support, he was named the chaplain and the almoner for the convicts 
of the galleys in France. And so he dedicated a large number of years to this ministry, to looking after these men who were really destitute, who were impoverished in every sense of the word. They were prisoners, forced to hard manual labor. But the more Vincent worked in this regard, the more he dedicated himself to look after these poor convicts, the more he realized that he couldn't do it by himself. And so he began to recruit priests to help him in this ministry of caring for the material and the spiritual need of the convicts. And this was the beginning of the congregation of the mission, the Vincentian priests, fathers. So you might know that here in Emmitsburg at St. Joseph's, there's a couple of Vincentian priests. They are descendants, if you will, of these first helpers of St. Vincent's. And then with the help of St. Louis de Merillac, he founded the Daughters of Charity to look after the hospitals that he was founding. And these hospitals, they didn't look after just the sick. They looked after the abandoned, they looked after orphanages, they looked after terminally ill patients. And then on top of that, so he already founded two congregations, he also organized the Ladies of Charity. And these were lay women who were financially very well off and they used their financial resources to support some of the most needy in French society. And so at one point, this soup kitchen they were running was feeding 16,000 people a day in Paris. And on top of that, all these great things he did for the poor, he realized that oftentimes the church's charitable action was inhibited by incompetent ecclesiastical authorities, incompetent bishops or immoral bishops and priests. And so he began to dedicate himself to the formation of the clergy. Because back in that day and age, you didn't even have to go to seminary to get ordained. You could become like an apprentice of a priest in a parish, and so long as you found a bishop to ordain you, you were good. And so, through Count Philip de Gondi, Vincent had a relationship with the king of France, and on account of that relationship, he managed to establish or to make it a requirement that everybody to be ordained in France would first have to take a retreat of two weeks with Vincent or with one of his priests. And these two-week retreats over the passing of time turned into two years of formation with one of the priests of the Congregation of the Mission. And they went on to found full-scale seminaries that would form men from the beginning to the end. And not just the formation of priests, but also the appointment of bishops. Vincent convinced the King of France to establish the Council of Conscience. Because back in that day and age, in the 17th century, uh, the kings, especially the King of France, had a good amount of influence as to determining who became bishop. So he, he didn't have the last word, but he was very important in that decision-making process. And so Vincent established this, this council of conscience that would review possible candidates. And they would say that this individual is in fact competent and capable of being a bishop or not. And the king named Vincent as the head of this council. And so Vincent didn't just shape the church's charitable works in France. He shaped the entire ecclesiastical structure in France, an influence that would last for centuries. And let's remember, Vincent, with this true story of conversion, didn't go from being like a flagrant heretic or some sort of really, um, some flagrant sinner to being a saint. He, he went from somebody who was kind of just living comfortably, not living his faith fully, 
to convert into somebody who started looking after the poorest of the poor. He, he embarked on his vocation. He saw the priesthood as a way to escape poverty. But he ended up spending the majority of his priesthood looking after those who were most in need, the most impoverished. Before his conversion, he didn't do anything to hurt the poor. He just didn't care. He didn't do anything. He was like the rich man in the gospel that was dining sumptuously while Lazarus was starving to death on his doorstep. And sometimes we can behave like that as well. We have people that could use our help and we don't hinder them. We don't you know, spit on them. We don't kick them. We don't you know, try to make their life more difficult. But we turn a blind eye. Now, hopefully, we don't have to get kidnapped by pirates in order to have a conversion experience in this regard. But some of these people that we turn a blind eye to, they live outside our border. Yes, we have an obligation to care first and foremost for those people that are closest to us, our families and our immediate um, society. But that doesn't mean we can ignore and we're not our brother's keeper just because there's a border between us and other individuals. Now, this is obviously a, a very important issue in the upcoming elections. And so it's important that we have some Catholic principles with which we can judge the situation. Because most Catholics know what the church teaches about euthanasia, what the church teaches about abortion, what the church teaches about individuals with same-sex attraction. But when it comes to other issues, Catholics can sometimes be influenced more by their political leanings than by their faith. And it's true that issues such as war, the economy, immigration, they're all intertwined with this political thinking. But when we have to analyze the situation and come to some sort of resolution and policy, that conversation must be based upon the principles of our faith. Now right now, we're not going to look at everything that could be looked at. We're not going to consider details about the policies or about administrative moves or the wall or you know, the recent decision by the Ninth Circuit Court's ruling on, the, um, on TPS. What we're going to do right now is we're just going to see what the scriptures, the church, and the popes have to say about this. What do the scriptures say about it? They talk a lot about it. From the book of Exodus. You shall not wrong a sojourner, a, could be a resident alien or stranger, would be other translations. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And again, Leviticus. When you reap the harvest, you shall leave something for the poor and for the sojourner. Exodus. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. I mean, there's many, many more. But there's a general notion that we should be caring about these people. There must be preferential love for these people. They might not be Israelites, but they are worthy of your love. And remember, you were a foreigner once too. But the scripture also says that the people that do immigrate, they have an obligation to the state, the country in which they immigrate. So for the Israelites, they were told, you don't need to tolerate the actions, certain actions of foreigners. For example, the foreigners were not allowed to 
sacrificed to the god Molech. They were not allowed to violate the Sabbath day. They were not allowed to blasphemy. And in the book of Jeremiah we read, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So they were supposed to obey the laws of the land in which they were dwelling and also pray for the welfare of that state to which they had immigrated. You've got to balance there. They have certain rights, but they've also got certain responsibilities, certain obligations. And the church teaches us about this twofold obligation as well. The Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is something which applies particularly to us in America. The more prosperous nations are obliged, to the extent they are able, to welcome the foreigner in search of security and the means of livelihood, which he cannot find in his country of origin. The more prosperous nations are obliged. At the same time, immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, to obey its laws, and to assist in carrying civic burdens. And you've even got something going back to the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215, 800 years back. The church is telling bishops that you have to look after the spiritual needs of immigrants. You have to make sure that the Mass can be celebrated in the language they understand, in the rite that they are familiar with. Gaudium et Spes from the Second Vatican Council talks about this too. And the popes are talking about this all the time, and not just recently, but for decades. So Pope Pius XII, back in 1952, he called the Holy Family fleeing into Egypt the prototype of all refugee families. Pope John XXIII said that state, state officials have the duty to accept immigrants. Pope St. John Paul II wrote that man has the right to leave his native land for various motives in order to seek better conditions of life in another country. And Pope Benedict said that every state has the right to regulate migration and to enact policies dictated by the general requirements of the common good. So, in conclusion, without giving specific policy guidelines, the church does seem to call for this balance of rights and responsibilities. The nation has responsibilities and rights, and so too does the immigrant, the foreigner. On the one hand, the immigrant has, has the right to immigrate, as well as the responsibility to incorporate into the land they move to, to pray for it, and to follow its laws. That's what the immigrant has to do. The state has the right to regulate its borders, but also a responsibility to welcome all those they can receive and treat them fairly once here. Now, it's worth noting that this sort of balanced approach you don't very often see in, on either end of the political spectrum. You'll tend to have extreme views presented, extreme policies, that will completely neglect the rights and responsibilities of one of the two parties. Now, Nobody is supposed to leave the church thinking that, okay, now we got this all figured out. The church has told us exactly what we are supposed to do about the border with Mexico. No. It is a very complicated situation. It is one that we are not going to have easy answers to. But when we discuss it, we have to consider what the church has to teach us about this. So some questions to ask ourselves. How Catholic is my position on immigration? Is my view based upon my faith, or is it based upon the platform of the political party I tend to support? 
do I agree that as a prosperous nation, we should be generous in welcoming and accepting refugees and immigrants? What generous means is, a, is not defined. But we, as a prosperous nation, do have an obligation of some regard in that sort. In a few moments, Christ, who himself fled into Egypt to escape Herod, is going to come into our souls. And so through the intercession of St. Vincent de Paul, let's pray that this sacrament of love might empower us to have a preferential sort of love for those who are most in need of our love, those who are most in need of our mercy. A preferential love for them, for their material needs, and even more importantly, their spiritual needs. Because as we read in today's gospel, those who show mercy will receive mercy.